Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. It's the podcast where we bring together big names from the world of advertising, marketing, and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity, and the future possibilities for our industry. Today, it's a special live episode, so a big welcome to everyone joining us online. And I'm delighted to introduce our two particularly special guests, Nishma Robb, who's marketing director for Google UK, no pressure then, and Aaron Gelbhart, who's the CEO and co-founder of Bloom and Wild, the online florist. Nishma joined Google in 2014, has been in her current role since September. Alongside her role in charge of brand reputation, she's a passionate leader and champion for diversity and equality, and was previously the chair of Women at Google. Aaron founded the Letterbox flower delivery service, Bloom and Wild, in 2013, alongside Ben Stanway. And in recent years, it's become one of the fastest growing companies in the UK. And the business has also expanded across Europe. So let's get into the conversation. I'll just wait for Nishma to reappear. There we are, Nishma. With the recent COVID-19 situation affecting our lifestyle so dramatically and driving many aspects of our lives even more online, what do you think have been the opportunities for Google during this period and conversely, some of the challenges? Mm. Well, I think it's been, um, I suppose, in terms of people's, the need for technology and the way that technology has helped us through this crisis, it brings with it a huge amount of responsibility, but also I think it's really kind of focused our attention in really being helpful, you know, and that's at the heart of our brand is actually how do we help people? And we have such a broad remit. So whether it's, you know, I think I would say really at the start of the crisis, we really moved into, um, pivoted, I suppose, our focus really into that kind of public service um facility in terms of really kind of making sure we're providing the right information it's the amount of people that were turning to google searching for information whether it's for news or government guidance you know particularly when there was a huge amount of ambiguity it was about making sure that we're surfacing the right the right information and then it's about thinking about like where can we help what were those core things we could help so whether it is around you know the, the pivot to be able to teach from home and thinking about like what on earth do we do at home actually trying to get people to stay at home through both google and youtube actually how can we make facilitate and enrich that experience of staying at home and encouraging them to do it how do we we were just talking about it now but you know how do you foster that kind of connection and collaboration that, that search and google and youtube really at the heart of saying how can you bring people together so the idea of technology but also the information and the access to other information resources and then, of course, leaning forward in a responsible sense to say, what more can we do? Whether it's our technology, so how we've helped support on, whether it's health, whether it's education, entertainment, 
Um, but also most importantly, thinking about our engineering resource, being able to support the efforts all round. You know, I think this was about everything from people were going into maps and looking at what was available or, you know, was something open or not, or whether it was around trying to think about how the technology was supporting um, the NHS through particularly some of the tough situations we know in the emergency wards around actually how technology played that role to connect people as well. So we really, I think, focus, you know, I think the challenge at Google is always we can do so much because we are for everyone. It's a door to everywhere. How do we have that focus? And interestingly, the crisis has meant two things. One, about having a, an absolute ruthless sense of prioritisation, do what's absolutely right to be helpful, to add to the noise, don't confuse, be responsible if people are turning to us for information, make sure they get to the right information and being responsible. Actually, how can we go beyond just the obvious help for technology and extend our reach to really support the efforts? And that ruthless prioritisation, and actually in a big organisation like Google, helping us to be faster in terms of our decision making really was kind of a big, I think, a shift in how we behaved and will, I hope, continue to behave. Did you find, too, that the role of marketing was elevated? I've often argued that under normal circumstances, particularly in tech-driven organisations, they're very much driven by a kind of left brain, to use a metaphor, engineering mentality. And suddenly in a crisis, when there's a large amount of uh, uncertainty, every question becomes a behavioural question or becomes a marketing question to some extent. So, you know, if you're an airline, 90% of a board meeting six months ago would be talking about hedging fuel prices. And now suddenly it's about how do we get people back onto planes? Has marketing at Google, have you been required to step up to the plate quite a lot in that respect? Yes, hugely so. As you say, I think also because you sit at the heart of so many different things happening. So the efforts of the technology and information to your point the connection of what we can see and understand so being that window of both um what we understand from the data and that but the tone and the helpfulness but as you say how we can really marketing leaning into how we tell and how we share and how we show up and so absolutely critical in terms of thinking about how we communicate because just having the technology and the services is not enough how you package it up make sure it's found and considered has been really kind of the efforts of marketing. So sitting very squarely at quite a cross section of the business. Um, so yeah, it's been, um, I think, great for, for our business and for other businesses to think about the role that marketing plays. So not necessarily being at the end of a chain no. of decisions, but really being at the start of that to think right from the beginning, actually what's the right way to do this? I mean, very cleverly, I noticed you're head of marketing and reputation, which I think is ingenious. I think it's a fatal mistake for marketing be to become known or associated with just Marcoms. And I think once you become the comms function rather than the marketing function, you end up being painted into the into a corner as a support function and a cost, not a source of value creation. And I think when you have reputation attached, reputation is generally the language that CEOs, i.e. non-marketers, use to talk about things that we talk about in marketing terms. So I think that's a really ingenious bit of branding. I don't know if that was your idea or whether whether you inherited the job title. I don't, I don't I quite take claim to it being, being my idea. I've inherited it. I think one of the things, to your point, though, is defining what that means and how it works. So reputation being, you know, how that responsibility of reputation is shared and how marketing plays a significant role in that. So as you say, connecting the Marcoms to the storytelling, to thinking very squarely about that focus on reputation. So actually what we're trying to achieve 
uh, and what we need to be really mindful of in anything we do and being very thoughtful about that reputation piece because I think that's where it it pushes us harder to really stop and think about every piece of communication storytelling creative whatever's going out the door is making sure it goes through that reputational layer first and I think that's that piece where you know, when there's an organisation the size that we are and the incredible efforts, as we've seen in every organisation, we're not unique in this, is people wanting to help in that moment. So you're flooded with great intent, you know, good intent and lots of ideas, but being able to prioritise that, but think smartly around, actually, if your reputation is to be helpful and responsible, how do you make sure that everything you do fits that rather than good things we can do? It's very interesting because whether you like it or not, in a sense, you're the Ministry of Information, aren't you? In a crisis, you suddenly have to step into that role because what would have been the COI 10, 15 years ago, uh, Google in many respects, along with obviously a few of the other large tech players, uh, essentially fulfil that function. I have to ask one, one really interesting question. When this crisis started, I was pretty much preparing for a tech breakdown. In other words, you know, long broadband outages, collapse of Zoom, YouTube buffering like a dog, and yet none of that's happened. Did you get close to the point of, uh, of crisis? Uh, were there, without we revealing too much, did you get near to the edge <laughs> of server capacity or bandwidth or whatever? We didn't, and I think that's partly the way that our network infrastructure is set up, but it is also taking the actions right at the beginning. So before you launch into what we may or may not do, there's, a, there's the engineering piece that we immediately reduce the bandwidth that, that's required to play YouTube. We, um, you know, I suppose our whole organisation and, and the bandwidth that we have, our network infrastructure about how one place supports the other, has been designed in this way. Without a doubt, I think, you know, yes, of course, huge pressure. And we had to really think carefully because the, the worst thing we could do in this crisis is fail in terms of that connection. And it's the same for, I suppose, any utility that's often considered in the background and we take it for granted. It's in that point of crisis that we need to know it will not fail. And I think we've been always designed as an organisation with it's that user first approach in terms of the, our responsibility is to keep people connected. Everything actually, else comes after actually that one nice of, thing know, one nice thing about this is that uh, the crisis has i think given people a newfound appreciation for everything from the postman to electricity to water supplies um so we're going to move now from the virtual to the very very physical which is um uh, a bloom and wild so aaron Many companies have had to rethink how they offer their services and either commence or update the online side of your business. Of course, your business was online from the very start. Um, what do you think? Um, I suppose it's been at the core of Bloom and Wild since the beginning. So let's go back to the beginning now. And how did you first spot that gap in the flower delivery markets? In particular, I suppose, a letterbox sized gap. Indeed. Um... So I'd had a number of frustrating experiences trying to send flowers, and so had most people that I spoke to. And it was weird because uh, the sending of flowers should be a really uh, emotionally positive experience for both sender and recipient. And too often it seemed like it was a frustration instead. So uh, that got me thinking about whether uh, it was possible to start a new sort of flower company. 
I was a customer of a business called Graze, um, which makes snacks that go through the letterbox, which uh, I was really addicted to. And I knew the guys that were running that. And it made me wonder whether we could do flowers in a similar way through the letterbox and whether that would solve part of the challenge and make the delivery aspect more convenient. Um, and then we went around and measured uh, literally thousands of letterboxes to get a sense of the variation in dimensions, literally with rulers and notebooks. It's quite awkward um, being caught on somebody's doorstep with a, a ruler and a notebook. Um, it looks like you're a sort of white-collar <laughs> burglar um, trying to get info. Um, but um, but we figured what sort of dimensions of box we could do, um, and from that, um, whether or not we could do a, a good range of flowers through the letterbox and learn that we could and took it from there. I have to ask this as a kind of postal nerd, how does that vary now you've gone into Europe? So do you find, just as the United States, you have those funny little dome roofed things, mm. which you can hit with a baseball bat if you're in a convert. I think that that's, it, it's, it's called mailbox uh, hockey, isn't it, or something? Um, yeah and of course it's a federal offense to tamper with the mail so weirdly theft from those u.s mailboxes is weirdly rare i think they're kind of sacrosanct how does that vary across europe have you found uh, wildly different uh... yes and um, the the um the sort of mail slot as the americans describe our letterboxes um it's a very british and irish thing so actually in france and germany um they don't have uh letterboxes in this format and it's been one of the things that has really um pushed us to diversify from just being a, a letterbox focused uh company to um having a much broader mission of making sending and receiving flowers the joy that it should be which um which i guess is a more emotive mission which is supported by a number of uh ways that we can be functionally differentiated from others of which um convenient delivery through the letterbox or otherwise is just one such differentiator. So we don't want to just be about the shape of a box. We want to be about an end-to-end -end experience. Do you think, and this is an interesting one, particularly given if you look at the uh, bizarre um, upturn in baking during this crisis, do you think you also profit from that thing which behavioral scientists call the Ikea effect? Because in order to have flowers delivered in a shape that fits through the letterbox, you have to do some aspect of the arranging yourself, which conventional economics would suggest was a downside. I would suggest might be an upside because just as, just as you have it in Ikea, which is, um, Tamprad is absolutely insistent that the fact that you assemble the furniture yourself gives you an additional pride and sense of ownership and achievement over that furniture. Do you find something of the same thing happening with Bloom and Wild, which is the fact that people have to do a little bit of their own arrangement contributes rather than detracts from the experience? we do when we started we thought that we would mainly be a self-purchase flower company and mainly people buying flower subscriptions for their own homes because we thought the unarranged nature of the flowers would be um sort of something that people would tolerate for their own purposes in return for the convenience of the delivery but would not want to gift to somebody else because it would feel um somewhat unfinished and actually we were wrong about that and what we found was that um, the self-purchase uh, mission actually was relatively well taken care of by the supermarket. Some people want flower subscription services and it's something we continue to offer and there are obviously other players that do so as well. Um, but actually, um, 
what people were really using us for, and this is well over 90% of our orders, is gifting to others, which wasn't what we expected. What we also learned, um, and which has remained true since the beginning, is that uh, those gifts were mainly being gifted by women to other women, whereas there's a lot of um, preconception of flower gifting as a sort of traditional uh, you know, male to female romantic gift and there are these notions of uh, you know the man going to this is very old-fashioned the man goes to work and then he brings flowers uh, home to his wife who opens the door to him and and actually what we found is that I think we're modernizing the category and we're we're not uh, sort of serving so much these grand gestures but we're serving day-to-day -day thoughtful gifting which is the just because the pick-me-up the thinking of you and for that, it's often uh, women sending it to family members or friends, and they send a gift that they themselves would want to receive, or in many cases, they themselves have received in the past, and then think, I love the, uh, you know, the experience of having to arrange these flowers for myself. It was part of what made this a joy to get. It wasn't just the flowers it was also the experience I was given and so they then want to re-gift that experience to others um, and this is something that uh, uh, us men uh, often just don't get and think that um, our flower recipients still want that grand gesture so um, I think it's contributed to this viral effect of uh, women uh, being recipients of flowers and then going on to be our customers and spread the word to others. I think that's wonderful in that nearly every business, every innovative business, finds that its ultimate target audience turns out to be very different from its imagined target audience. And I think, I always argue this, that the principal role of marketing is in fact to learn deep human truths about what's really going on. And that's probably true of flowers, that if you're, once you're married, other than on a few special occasions during the year, bringing home flowers would arouse suspicion as much as it might arouse gratitude, to be absolutely honest. Um, why have you done this now? So I think that's a fascinating, that's a really fascinating thing. But it's also fascinating because I think you know, you started off with what you might call a technological insight about the size of the letterbox. And then what you find is that once you offer things through a different channel or mode, um, uh, it fundamentally changes the nature of the audience, that the interface, you know, essentially changes the audience. Um, I was just going to ask Nishma here, how do you, how, what have you learned? Because if, if uh, I mean, there's no one really um, better than Google place to actually learn about human behavior during this crisis. What's your behavioral data taught you in the same way where unex particularly unexpected or counterintuitive findings, which I always think are five times as valuable as, as confirmatory findings, simply because mm -hmm. confirmatory findings are kind of logical and everybody knows it. What have you discovered that surprises you? Uh, well, I think, as you said, I think it's been a huge, it's, well, I think Alain de Botan said it, really, it's kind of the most interesting enormous global scale social experiment to see in terms of, of that shift in behavior. I think, you know, if I look at the earlier stages is when we were seeing a wealth of search queries around that information, we could quite quickly spot this increasing trend about people asking, how can I help? And they wanted to find all different manner of ways of helping from within their home to, you know, it was the obvious stuff in terms of what people were trying to do to help support the NHS. But there was a breadth of ways that people were saying, how can I help? How can I learn? How can I use this time? And not in a, um, a sense of freedom, but it's almost kind of like coming back to some life skills. I think your point around actually 
how we've all fallen in love or maybe we haven't but you know having to kind of rethink how we cook and what how we connect and, and what we do there i think there's some interesting things in terms of behavior of how we come together as families and communicate i've loved particularly and i think this is a really interesting one around arts when we at the start of the crisis we um, worked with the national theater and some other organizations to live stream not live stream sorry to stream uh, pre-recorded theater shows and there was you know, I would say this from an arts industry that were reticent about thinking about how the role of digital played with real life experiences and hadn't necessarily wanted to embrace it. A fear that something would replace the other. Interesting, with huge audiences of people, you know, dining in to watch a Saturday night, a trip to the theatre and now in front of the TV and doing it, has actually brought new audiences, new discovery and interest into arts that that they just simply weren't reaching before and it's that accessibility but also a shift in behavior it hasn't meant that people don't want to go back to the theater or want to try and try it actually more so there's that demand that people say right once we're open and allowed i want to go and experience <coughs> this in life myself i think, also I, think I, I think that's by the way we, uh, the reason i'm dwelling on that point is someone's just asked a question here, which is digital transformation is more is about people and culture rather than technology. I think psychologically that fear of cannibalization, which is at the root of an awful lot of companies that essentially fail to innovate or fail to adapt, is one of the most misplaced fears. Now it's not, it, it, by the way, sometimes it's true. You know, there are cases where the fax machine is pretty much dead outside the NHS at any rate. Okay, so there are cases where digital um, alternatives <coughs> eat their own parents, as it were. But if you look at so many cases where this has been misunderstood, so for example, surprisingly, the VHS video cassette, which Hollywood thought would destroy cinema, more or less rescued it because instead of being a cheaper alternative or a substitute, it was a gateway drug to feature films and by reviving interest in big blockbuster movies the vhs video cassette pretty much saved cinema in many respects and i think you're absolutely right there that this idea that um uh, in other words people have a range of alternatives and they will buy the content in the cheapest form available therefore when you offer different channels and routes to access you're essentially destroying your own business is a really dangerous assumption and it's one of those things i think that's logical but wrong and i think that's so the heart of it i agree i think technology and it's in the way that technology has played a role in the speed of which we had to lock down you know and facilitate and support people in that i also think technology will play a significant role as we come out of it and there is a lot of fear to your point of businesses that have considered you know this um digital being a threat to their existing uh, infrastructure and the way that they connect with audiences now recognizing and as we see and this is something that i'm very passionate about what we do at google as we move forward on our next set of you know how we think about our marketing now Think about how we support the economic recovery it isn't about pushing everything online there are businesses like bloom and wild which frankly i've very much benefited from during this period from friends that have sent me flowers but this idea of different channels for choices so this idea that actually people do want to still go back to the shops and the pubs and the restaurants this isn't been a replacement but there is a hybrid here not every business can move online entirely but the digital element can enhance what they're doing. So pubs and restaurants that, for example, you know, I just think also where consumer confidence is low, people are still anxious about returning. We still have months of recovery, really, even just in consumer confidence. The role that digital can play, that we can play as Google, but also businesses can, is actually how do you support that? So through the crisis, we actually made some changes or 
actually elevated some features in maps that people perhaps hadn't paid enough attention to. And we quickly shifted things at the top of maps to rather than being driving to your transport, it was cycling and walking, you know, just reordering or takeaway and delivery. So actually, again, to your point about the nudges to encourage people to stay at home or to, to kind of think about different ways. And then for the businesses that were trying to pivot, were saying, I have one of the most marvellous fish and chip shops just down the road from me and was clearly shut down at the beginning, but then thought about their livelihood to say, well, could we safely create a way that people could come up and pick up their fish and chips or the local shop that had some aspect to be able to kind of package up the bread and send it out. But they needed a way to communicate that. And previously, it hadn't been intrinsic to what they needed to do. But being able to make little changes, which are free, these aren't, this is about recognising this isn't about someone embarking on a marketing campaign. It's about using the tools and the way that we thinking deeply about actually how do people behave? What do they look for and what are they searching for? And it's sometimes in maps because I'm going for a walk and then I see something pop up and say, actually, this shop is open between 10 and 2 for, for pickup. All of a sudden, I'm like, great, my needs are service and I'm helping that business. So I think as we move out of this, the reassurances that digital can provide in that hybrid model so pubs and restaurants that can put up photographs on their listings to show, look how they're doing social distancing or explaining that, you know, if, if a pub's going to be at 50 percent of the capacity for the next period of time, what else can they do to generate income? I think Glorious. businesses are going to have to think differently. And Google Play, I think, a really significant role here. This isn't as I say, it's not about the ads and marketing piece. That will be for some businesses. But just in that information yes, provision, oh, it's my Google answering, um, is the way actually thinking about how consumers are finding looking. That love of local, I think, you know, as you say, behaviour, people's appreciation and recognition of what's in their area and thinking a little bit more about their own personal needs and what's not being serviced. Not everything can be serviced through a website, but actually trying to find that love and share it and support it. We want to be able to facilitate that. And I think that's, again, it's really important about how we think about consumers and fulfilling people's user needs, but also actually how can we support businesses as they recover out of this. So you more or less, unbeknownst to us, kind of localised Google. In other words, the ambit shrank. When we searched in, in Google, suddenly the search results were more hyper-localised than before. Because I kind of noticed that now you mention it that suddenly, you know, I'd search for something and indeed pictures of food from a local um, pub uh, started appearing, which was offering takeaways. So I have to say, I mean, all credit to you for that, because I, 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 I mean, I, I, I was, I, 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 there was a little bit of me going, that never really came up before, but I didn't really give it any thought. So utter congratulations, also congratulations, I think, for asking the, exactly the right question, which is, before you even think in conventional communications and attitudinal terms, the first question is, how can we be useful? And the second question is, if we can't, or beyond that, how can we help other people be useful? And I think one of the most overlooked areas in marketing, and I often talk about this, in behavioral science, it's called the Benjamin Franklin effect, which is the slightly strange finding that we like people we do favors for. And I've always argued to airline clients, look, Funnily enough, if you're overbooked on the 10.30 flight and you're underbooked on the 11.30 flight, if you ask people nicely, not only will 10 people agree to shift, but weirdly, they'll become more loyal to you as a result. And I think the standard economic idea that we're purely self-interested pollutes quite a lot of business thinking. And in fact, a business that provides a means by which I can help someone else voluntarily 
uh, will become a very well liked and um, uh, and successful business. And we never look for that because I think we're probably too focused on this economic model of you know entirely self interested humans. So I'm in total congratulations. Yeah. Now, funny enough, that brings me on to Aaron. Um, uh, you've got a thing called the thoughtfulness movement, which puts customers' needs right at the heart of uh, uh, your business. Uh, tell us why you felt so passionately about the thoughtfulness movement. So um, our business is very uh, seasonal driven um, around uh, occasions like, well, to a small extent, Father's Day, which is obviously this weekend, but um, Mother's Day in particular is the, big, is the busiest uh, period of the year for us and many other flower companies. And Obviously, we do lots of marketing on email and other places about this. Um, two years ago, we started um, noticing quite a lot of emails from customers saying, you know, Mother's Day is a really difficult time for me, for me and we'd prefer that um, uh, you didn't send us um, emails at this time. You didn't send me emails at this time of year. So we said, okay, and we uh, made a list of these people and stopped sending them emails. And we said, are you happy for us to start emailing you again after Mother's Day? And they, most of them said yes. And so we sort of made a list of people to then add back to our email list. And it was sort of, you know, like a helpful, but um, manual service. And then the next year we thought, I wonder if there are lots of other people who are suffering in silence and didn't say anything to us. So we, um, we sent out an opt-out um, uh, for Mother's Day specifically, saying, would you rather not hear from us about Mother's Day um, at all? Um, expecting, you know, a few more people than the previous year to um, sort of fill in our form. Um, and we had 17,000 people um, sort of populated in an afternoon, which was crazy and way, you know, way, way more than we expected, including uh, some journalists and influential figures for whom Mother's Day is a sense of occasion. And the whole thing really sort of... Um, became by our standards quite high profile and, and we realized that we had tapped into something that people really cared about um, but that it was good business as well because rather than sending people emails that were just going to be hurtful to them and they weren't going to buy our flowers anyway and they're probably going to think negatively about us as a company we could uh, retain customers for the longer term we could carry on emailing them during the mother's day period just about something else so actually we'd be more likely to um sort of uh, win their business in the short term by emailing them about something that they wanted to hear about because people may still want flowers in march they just don't want to hear about mother's day um and we could do something good um as well so that was year two and then this year we thought well that was great obviously we'll do it again we'll make it better this year and so it wasn't just about email this year we also found ways of excluding people from digital marketing from them not seeing mother's day products or mother's day greeting cards on our website literally the full end-to-end -end experience um, which people really appreciated in terms of sort of commitment and that obviously required quite a lot of technology resource and then we started a thoughtful marketing movement as well because we thought um this would be something which would be great if it could become an industry norm and if we sort of set a challenge to other people in you know online shopping gifting related industries some of whom had started had noticed it and started to do this anyway um can we actually bring about real change and make uh, this whole time of the year less upsetting for people for whom it is upsetting not just because bloom and wild doesn't hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Email them, but because nobody emails them and nobody bombards them in any way about something that they don't want to hear. And it went, again, much better than we expected. And we had 130 other businesses sign up. And we're not a B2B platform or marketing business. We're just trying to sort of participate in the community. And um, we've been really pleased. And it's actually, I think, um, brought together a group of 130 businesses that don't want to just do Mother's Day opt-out. We want to find better ways of communicating with customers um, that's more thoughtful to them. Per what you said originally about a marketing and reputation or marketing and communications department, um, not just sort of marketing as a standalone service. And and I think that's gone down really well. I think, you know, now obviously where we've moved into the COVID era, rapidly afterwards and we've uh, thought as a group about how we can be more thoughtful about marketing um, during the, the pandemic. Um, in many cases that's been about um, sort of raising money for um, frontline uh, organizations. Now obviously as we move into um, talking about Black Lives Matter, um, pride, diversity and inclusion more broadly, again we're trying to uh, gather this group of thoughtful marketers and figure out um, what the, the best approach is to, um, to address important questions like this. So I think it, um, it's what marketing should be because fundamentally marketing is about creating positive perceptions um, among uh, consumers or users um, about a business and making them um, therefore have greater affinity to you. And I think the way you do that isn't by just saying, do you want to buy, do you want to buy, do you want to buy? It's by understanding what really matters to people and then being responsive to that and showing that you care. I think this is really interesting because if you think about it, you are in the thoughtfulness business. And so for a thoughtfulness business not to manifest thoughtfulness itself is kind of contradictory. And that's one of the things which I think bad marketers can very, very easily fail to understand because you're so focused on uh, what you might call the optimal outcome, which is people have mothers buy flowers, that an equally important audience, which is people who don't want to hear about Mother's Day at all, gets completely overlooked. And that's a brilliant example of marketing thoughtfulness where you're thinking about the long-term effect of your communications 
even though they may be you know digital communications you're thinking about the long-term effect rather than just maximizing short short-term conversion or something of that kind is there a way by the way you can i mean you must be seeking to make um uh, the entire flower business less seasonal and is there a way one really great opportunity i think uh, for your business would be in saying thank you for someone you've had dinner with, you know, for hospitality. Um, is there a way you can target that? Are you looking at that? Because if, if you think of the non the non letterbox size floral delivery, it's a bit too momentous occasion, an occasion in a way. If you've just had you know pie and chips with someone round the corner, it's a bit too extreme to have someone ringing at their doorbell at a time when they're probably out, and then displaying this huge bunch of flowers, and it's a wee bit pricey too. Whereas. Um, as a way of saying thank you for any small thing, this seems to me a beautifully uh, meaningful way to do it. Have you looked at how you can expand that part of your business? Because one of the things that fascinates me, we've just had the Nudgestock Festival, and Laurie Santos from Yale, who uh, gives, I think, what is the most watched online lecture that Yale's ever had. And it was the most attended lecture on what really makes you happy. And one of the strangest findings is that acts of generosity and reciprocation, like writing a thank you letter, even though in my own mind, I tend to see that as a cost. If you look at the effect it has on happiness and well-being, it makes an extraordinary contribution. So driving people to engage in sort of reciprocal acts of thanks would strike me as a really big opportunity. A any, any plans there or any uh, trade secrets? We, we, uh, beyond plans, very much a core part of our business. Um, linking back to what I said about, um, you know, more everyday gifting and um, smaller everyday gestures, we have uh, tried to map out our um, market share by flower gifting occasion and actually occasions like thank you or just because um, or thinking of you which we but just because a web bloom and wild um, has the highest relative market share versus our online competitors we um, we under index on um, some bigger um, marquee occasions and also a couple of occasions like sympathy where as a sort of joy focused brand we haven't really sort of led with those as much so I do think that the product format and the fact that we have this uh, female to female consumer recipient target uh, group um, has meant that we have picked up a lot of these um, sort of more uh, everyday gifts the other thing that we've really tried to do to um, make our business less uh, peaky or seasonal is to understand when people have got um, occasions um, that are um, important and unique to them and then uh, offer them uh, the ability to remind them at peak times. So um, obviously people can save occasions in the Bloom and Wild Occasion Planner and then we remind people we can also we allow people to import birthdays stored in their phones into um, their Bloom and Wild app or to export occasions that they've saved from the Bloom and Wild app back into their phone calendars so then they get reminders and all of these things have been um, really useful for customers in having a, a sort of convenient reminder and couple of touch service to um, to remember people's birthdays, anniversaries, and other important occasions. And again, it's a sort of win-win. It's um, helpful for people because we remind them, we make it easy for them to send a great gift, but it's also um, 
good for us because it means that we make our business less seasonal and we, we achieve sales. So we're always looking for things like this. There was an ingenious idea that Amazon had and then bizarrely abandoned where you could send someone a book. This was in the days when they were pretty much purely a bookshop. You could send someone a book using purely their email address. So they'd receive an email saying, so-and-so has sent you a book. And the business of typing in their address and all the other details, which many, my own children, are, you know, pretty rubbish when it comes to postal communications. Uh, have you ever looked at that as an alternative, where you can simply email someone the present and then they deal with the time and uh, the date of arrival, for example? We've looked at it and chosen not to go ahead with it for now, although it remains in consideration. Um, it hasn't proven to be a big customer problem, the um, sort of customer not having the recipient's address details. Um, and actually, the um, I guess also given the letterbox format, the serendipity of surprise of this uh, thing being on your um, doormat has been quite a big part of what people enjoy about receiving the product. So we've tried to... I guess, given that we've heard away from the sort of pre-notification um, that something's going to arrive. Um, but it's, a, it's an idea that we, um, we do revisit from time to time because I think there's also a, a reduction in friction potentially and some people maybe do need to go and look up the address or something like that, which can be annoying. So um, definitely one that we'll we uh, revisit. Mishma, yeah. yeah we've been, I was just going to say, we did something which is... Um, I mean, this wasn't for commercial purposes, but I think, you know, building on your idea in terms of something to look at, because I do think there's something there. So for all our staff, our, our charity of the year, um, so all Googlers will support and do activities for it, is Mind. And as one of the things we wanted to do this year was a way, which we would have done usually in the office, where it's a nice way to be able to show appreciation or support to someone. Now, in this situation when we're all in lockdown, the reality is we don't want loads of people putting in their addresses and actually sometimes I want to say thank you or show a bit of support to someone. I don't know well enough to know their address, but of course I know what they're eating to donate to the charity as part of it, but I could gift a little sunflower box, so people could grow their own, to that. And of course I didn't need to have their address, I just wrote their email and they got, a, they got a, an email from our internal team that running the support for charity that simply said okay you know we'd like to send you something if you want to receive it just pop your address in here and the lovely thing about it I could gift this thought of this sunflower box and give to charity but to a whole load of people I didn't need to know their home address and I do think there's something in that the giving and the, and the more to your point the more smaller gestures that we can do that sometimes having the address and all of that pre-thought does I agree with you about the the joy of the surprise but sometimes actually some of these quicker gestures have been super helpful it comes from an insight which is apparently we give fewer things than we'd like to. So most people would be more generous to their friends if it were made less fr uh, frictionful, I suppose. Now, before we get on to the next question, I've got to ask this question because, and actually it ties in very nicely with the question of your support for mind, because I've always thought that um, mental health is grossly under-supported relative to uh, physical health in terms of government expenditure and indeed research and everything else. Uh, how have you found your teams have reacted to lockdown? I mean, one of the findings you have is obviously depending on both personality and circumstance. Uh, the experience of working remotely has been anything from joyous, in the case of kind of introverts like me with a garden, 
where I've broadly speaking found it both more productive and less stressful than uh, conventional work. Whereas for people in different circumstances, it must be uh, absolutely grim. I mean, if you're a lunatic flatmate or whatever it may be, uh, it must be really, really impossible. How have you reacted to that change with your own teams, mostly? Hmm. It's been, so it's interesting, we've seen it go through phases. So it's been core to, you know, like any business, people first. So we immediately consider, obviously, getting people home for their safety. And then it's addressing the, the challenges. You say the experience is so different either because of your personality type. So as we were just saying earlier, I'm, I'm an extrovert, so I get my energy from being around others. So I found that very hard to be oh, my only contact being through this screen and not having any of those smaller moments or physical contact in terms of just being able to read more of people and, and experience that. But actually also they're just their home setup. To your point, the variance between people who are in a house share or they don't have somewhere they can, you know, I'm very lucky I'm sat in a, in a home office here, but some of my team, you know, like propping up ironing boards and doing that. It's okay when you're in a temporary position, you start saying you're going to be in this three months. And actually we've said in, in the UK, we will be returning. We will, we won't return in full by the end of this year. It will be a few number of people kind of going in optionally is that becomes a totally different mindset for people who you can kind of hunker down and do it for a few months and you've got to look at it as a longer stretch and what we found was it's the belonging piece more than anything else so initially there was a great rush of you know team quizzes and team lunches etc and then you hit this point of fatigue because you can only do that so much and you can only get so much from those and although you have to keep that part of the culture going we found that there's also this sense of filling your time so we found people were doing too much you know feeling like they needed to fill the day just as they would have done in the office because the reality is it's a totally different experience when you're working from home and I think the mental strain as well as the physical sense of just sat in one place we've had to really adjust and I don't think for, for any moment we have this completely nailed we've had lots of conversations about that sense of belonging the sense of actually everything's so much more structured so you have 30 minutes or 45 minutes whatever it might be for a meeting the, the kind of water cooler conversation is gone so the connections that people have to each other are diminishing and then it's around actually so we're looking at that i don't think there's an easy solve particularly if you start to look at bigger numbers but i think going forward this is for us i think you know number one on the agenda is actually how do we maintain this for the next six months it's almost you know there'll be aspects that'll be easier through the summer my worry is as you come into the winter months where you really don't see a lot of daylight and the energy that need people need for that so i think i think the mental health strain like pre-covid was a worry anyway of the way that we live our lives this has brought up a whole new set of challenges and i think um everything from responding to the reality of kind of people who are juggling small kids or kids to those who are on their own and lonely. We have lots of international workers as well who are further away from home and can't necessarily get back. It, there's breadth. And I think what we've tried to do, the things that have worked for us is, I think it's that kind of leadership in crisis. So being consistent, trying to remove where possible. If there's ambiguity, just try and make some decisions fast so people have something to hold on to. And then be creating the forums where people, you know, and it has to start leadership and honesty if we're not doing okay. You know, because actually there's nothing worse than people feeling it's not okay is only at the extremes. Not okay is just the days we go, I missed that there was a really nice coffee machine in the office. You know, the little things, it's okay to not be okay. I think as soon as you try to normalise some of the emotions that people are feeling, that helps. And then we try to do 
it's harder, but the kind of nutritional content, you know, Google's great for doing these things before talks at. But actually we've now tried to double down our focus on things that people can find either some kind of mindfulness well-being, but do it in a level that that's accessible, that doesn't feel too aspirational. It really fixes the everyday. It's very interesting your talk on personality type too, because um, I'm, I noticed that, that a large number of people in marketing are highly extrovert, by which I mean they actually derive their energy from being with other people. I'm a bit weird actually, because I'm an introvert, but my shadow self is kind of Freddie Mercury, in that I'm happy, I, I view sociability as a bit like sex. It's, uh, it's really enjoyable, but it's also really tiring. And um, so after about an hour and a half of sociability, that's it for the day, you know. And um, I noticed this extraordinary difference in people. So I'm very, very happy doing something like a large stadium, well, you know, speaker event. But after that, I want to kind of be a recluse for a few hours. How, Aaron, how, how have you, how, one of the things I find really interesting about this is this is an enforced experiment in white collar working. And whereas blue collar workers have had their lives time and motioned and tailorized, you know, down to within an inch of their lives, we haven't really conducted any experiments in this area until it was forced on us. I used to do a few of them myself for the last few years because I've been a huge kind of remote working and Zoom evangelist, Google Teams, sorry, uh, Google Teams evangelist. And... Um, so having been a huge evangelist, I was conducting these experiments going back two or three years as to what is the ideal environment and mix of environments in which people should work and to what extent we should acknowledge people's different temperament in allowing them to work in a place and at a time that suits them, wherever the work is asynchronous, as it were. Um, Aaron, what, what, what have you found? Because I, I do find there's a terrible reflection on business culture that it was only when a pandemic arrived that we started actually saying, hey, maybe we could try out some of these technologies. They might enable us to do things differently. And the weirdest finding is, for the last four months, my business life has been more international ever since I've never left Kent, basically. So, you know, you have these conversations, because there's no air cost, there's no transport cost, you have literally a meeting with someone from Kenya, someone from Perth, and someone from Atlanta, which would never have happened in the real world. How's it been with you, Aaron? I'm, I'm really intrigued. Yeah, so uh, I guess um, a, a lot of um, sort of startups and scale-ups have tried to be more sort of remote-friendly for some time now, and um, some of the uh, attributes that make people want to work at companies like ours are um, sort of a more informal atmosphere and more flexibility, etc. I think that to a certain extent goes for the whole tech sector, but perhaps in particular for earlier stage businesses within it. Um, so we were somewhat set up for um, work from home, but it, it wasn't the norm. And um, we have a, um, still have a, um, a very vibrant office, which we, um, we won't abandon and which will um, remain part of um, our uh, employee value proposition. Um, in the long term in which um you know we hope people will uh, will be a place that people want to go but we've been extremely pleasantly surprised by how we adjusted to work from home we actually shut down um, and moved to full remote work about a week before um we were required to and i think that um that really landed well with our team that we we're putting them first especially as it was just before mother's day which as i've already mentioned is our busiest time of the year so we sort of ran our, our peak remotely and that was um 
you know, certainly uh, more challenging because at that point we weren't well set up for uh, remote, remote work. So we were sort of, uh, you know, learning to fly the plane while it was, uh, you know, 35,000 feet or whatever the expression is. Um, but now I think as we start to sort of survey our team and see what people want, um, about 50% of our team would like to be um, entirely or primarily remote. Um, about 30% would like to be entirely or almost entirely in the office and the 20% somewhere in the middle or would like a, a sort of a 50-50 mix. So it's not slam dunk in that we can go fully remote. And I think it's, um, it's hard to impose remote on people that don't want it. So the office will continue to play a role. But, um, but the, um, the response to remote is really positive. And I think people have um, found just all sorts of practical benefits. They save a lot of time. They save a huge amount of money on travel, especially with the cost of um, living in London and as a, a startup employer often you um, you pay slightly lower salaries but then people can um, sort of make money through um, the company being successful but that's a longer term bet so that makes the um, cost of accommodation in central London um, more of a stretch for people so people are maybe more likely to live a bit further away and so um, saving that travel cost really helps people sort of meet their financial goals um, for uh, a young parent like me and um, we had our, our second child in February just before this started and actually I've been a way more present dad um, as a result of working from home than if I was uh, adding the commuting time on top of an already busy schedule so I think there are lots of benefits that we'd like to preserve in the long term while um, sort of also maintaining this like cultural hub that's really important for many of our team and which i think sort of uh yeah drives no, our I, values. I should i should just be absolutely clear on this that none of us even the complete um zealots which i'd count myself one none of us proposed that this was something for five days a week all the time what we proposed is that there's a coordination problem to be solved and that you need days dedicated to face-to-face -face meeting and days dedicated to remote that's one interesting thing which i think is true um, but no, no, you know, even I, in my most extreme moments, wouldn't have suggested that one stroke two days in the office is absolutely necessary for team cohesion. We've just had a really interesting comment come in, actually, from Paul Hackett, where he says that one thing worthy of consideration is how the, um, the, the virtual office enables younger and new members of staff to still benefit from the osmosis of learning from more experienced people. One of the things I've always said about business travel is that you get to do business travel at the very age when you enjoy it least. You know, a 25-year-old regards a one-day trip to Frankfurt as a bit of a boon, whereas I'd regard it as a royal pain in the ass. okay? And one thing I have noticed is I'm present at far more meetings because I'm no longer travelling to Frankfurt. And there's also something about the dynamics of online meetings, which is different. And one of the strange, this isn't just coming from Ogilvy, by the way, it came from Suntory, who I was talking to. They said one of their most surprising discoveries was you can brainstorm and ideate really effectively online. And they never expected that, that you could actually hold ideation sessions online. And the other thing we've started discussing is that because of the coordination costs and the sunk travel costs of getting people to a single place, everybody always tried to hold a brainstorming meeting as a whole single day. And by the end of the day, you were shocked. And I've always argued that if you split it into two and you had an online session for a, a few hours where you immersed people in the problem, then you left it for a few days or even a week. And then you got together maybe physically in part or entirely 
Um, but splitting those things into two might lead to much better outcomes. This is the kind of experimentation that interests me. How do you, how do you both, using technology and just using face-to-face -face culture in more normal times, how do you create that kind of culture of innovation within your teams? Because my argument is always, we need to make clear, particularly in the tech world, that marketing is innovation. And what I mean by that is there are two ways you can innovate. You can either work out what people want and find a really clever way to deliver it, to make it. Or you can work out what you can make and find a really clever way to make people want it. And that there's no useful economic distinction to be made between those two sides of the same coin. And so I always think of marketing as basically part of the R&D function of a business. And it should be looked at in that way, in the way it's assessed, in the way the metrics are set, and with the acceptance of failure, by the way. So what, what do you do to really create that innovative culture? Well, I think, I think there's a couple of things. I think you're right in terms of there's been a democratisation of, yeah. um, of whether it's decision making or access to people. So things that may have been perceived as happening away or in a particular room actually we're able to bring more people into that process so we have been experimenting with having what we've called home sites and breaking them into parts because actually i think your people your point about that thought is crucial when you try and do these things we've done them in the past in a day and actually because that's just how it's easier to organize everyone to take them if you're going to you know, take them away put them in a room for a day it felt like that was the right way to organize because we're forced now into position because no one wants to sit longer than two or three hours we've done this and we have found the output to be way more rich than it ever been because Isn't you actually yeah, spend it's time correcting. Yeah. yeah, correcting, considering. And initially we didn't get the agendas right. Initially we were literally taking a day's worth of content putting it to two. When we stopped and we did it the second time, we said, actually, it's it's actually just one day, it's just one session, and the second session is a reflection and an update. That's when we've really kind of you shifted the output. And I think your point about technology and this idea of and I think we were as we fell foul to it as many others. I mean, you know, early years of Google, this idea that ideas came from everywhere. The business was smaller, it was easier to do. And as you become bigger and more bureaucratic or more layered, actually there was a challenge of those some of those real nascent ideas that people have, but just not coming through. The interesting through this period is actually A, the, I think the, the clearer the clarity of focus has allowed people to be more considered around how you really do innovate but actually through docs and slides and things that we're creating more open access able to invite more people to forums giving them a chance to consider and think about it and come back has actually created a much greater breadth of that way that we innovate and i also think there's a pace of change you know we're slightly, we're, you know, I agree with you. I think it's amazing having spent years and years trying to think about how we solve flexibility and all the reasons why people would tell you it wouldn't work. We've done it overnight and now everyone's embracing flexibility and it's not just for new mums, it's for everybody. But it's actually giving people more control over when they do that thinking time. Yeah. So one of the crucial things is actually some people aren't great when they're thinking in a forced environment in a day. Mornings, terrible. Oh, or God. morning. Yeah. yeah, I'm not a morning <laughs> person, I'm an evening person <laughs> so being able to do that is that you're and and, and actually it's, it's kind of an opportunity and a challenge so the curiosity and inspiration that you really want to try and drive so one of the biggest challenges is actually restricted in your home so you're more re reducing your opportunity of being able to be curious and discover so how do you replace that with the right resources and questions but then the opportunity to kind of really have the freedom to think in a way that's not restricted by the nine to five or the off-site and things is 
definitely bring more flourishing work. So I think it's two, it's one about respect for behavior and the other then is actually, is, is coming back to the outcome rather than being forced into some kind of inherited structure of doing things. I'll give you a really, I, good, I think, I'll give you a really good tip for everybody. Buy your staff a large 4K TV and use it as a monitor because um, having screen size, screen real estate. Re so yesterday I had my email and my calendar on the left-hand side of the screen and the National Gallery does these behind closed doors tours while it's, while it's closed. So I had my email on the left and there was a geezer talking about Rembrandt on the right, which is my, I was like a pig in shit. That's my idea of absolute bliss because I'm getting on with useful work while also culturally stimulating myself at the same time. So Aaron, what about you? Have you done any experiments or found any particular, this is wonderful by the way, thank you so much. I, I think your learnings there are really, really useful. So thank you for sharing. You're giving away trade secrets. We, we've done quite a few things. I think maybe one thing I'd call out, um, so we're heavy users of Slack, as I guess uh, many um, businesses of our scale. Um, and actually we, we have uh, meta-innovated because uh, we have innovated an innovation bot on Slack, um, which basically is like a, a little program that one of our developers has made that sits on top of Slack where anybody at the company can uh, anonymously type in uh, forward slash innovation and it built, brings up a form um, where you can put an idea in place and why you think it's a good idea and what problem it might solve. And then it populates an innovation Slack channel and you can either be anonymous or you can say who you are, but it means that people can anonymously submit ideas that are for uh, others to publicly look at, you know, like upvote, comment on, get excited on, and start to like work on with their teams. Then there's a, a group that meets to sort of prioritize these, um, plus get feedback from, use customer feedback and other sources as well. But actually um, this democratization of, really lightweight input into the company's innovation process has landed really well. So you've, you've effectively come up with a technological version of what Julian Richer of Richer Sounds always used to do. He had a system where anybody who sent in an idea got a fiver. Now, yeah. a lot of people said, well, people are going to abuse that system. And he said, you got the odd fatuous idea, but I mean, it was worth a fiver for the lols, to be honest. And, he, and, you, and then if the idea was implemented, you got something like 500 pounds. But I mean, you don't even need, I don't think, financial incentives necessarily in every business. And so that business of, of essentially um, allowing bottom-up ideas to bubble up through a sort of distillery, I think is a really tremendous, I think we're going to nick that actually. Um, so I've got to wrap up now. I'm terribly sorry, but I did promise a fairly hard ending at 12 and my um, Amazon wall clock. Pretty good purchase, by the way. Um, my um, Alexa enabled wall clock is telling me that we've already overrun, but it's been an absolutely fascinating chat. Um, and um, Nishma Rob from Google, uh, Aaron Gelbhart from Bloom and Wild, huge thanks for your time and joining me on this uh, first ever live episode of the podcast. And I hope that all of you who've joined us today, and the numbers have held up remarkably well, I have to say, without giving anything away, I hope you've uh, in massively enjoyed the conversation through Zoom. If you want to re-listen or you want to pass it on to your friends, the podcast will be available to download and share with colleagues and friends later on today via all the usual podcast uh, platforms. And it just remains for me to say that this podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. And for more information on powering your business growth, visit the website alfinsight.com. 
And the series is expertly and incredibly helpfully produced. I added those adjectives myself because uh, they really are tremendous by the content team at Ultimate Sound and Vision. Thank you for listening so much. Stay safe and all of you have a really great day. I think uh, you can improve your day significantly and your future productivity going forward just by stealing three or four of the tips uh, that uh, Nishma and Aaron have shared with you today. So thanks ever so much and um, see you or talk to you at least uh, in the next few weeks. Thank you and bye-bye. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.